Good morning. I just want to second what John said. Well, I'm just thankful for Pastor Search Committee and the work they're putting in and their unity and also just the unity of this church <laughs> in a time of transition. It's just the church, you're being the church, and, and I'm just thankful. Um, so, yeah, keep doing what you're doing. Um, we're continuing Galatians uh, chapter 2. And so far in Galatians, Paul has pretty quickly gotten to the point. He's dropped the gospel bomb uh, on us. And, and unlike in other letters that Paul writes, he doesn't have that traditional prayer and thanksgiving portion of the letter. He just gets right to the, to the meat of the problem. And he's done that. And we've seen that he speaks this problem of distorting the gospel. And we've talked about that in the past couple of weeks. And also last week, Jeff helped us see where Paul has recounted his own story. And he's reminded the Galatians and us that he's like, you remember what I was. Remember I was this uptight, religious, pharisaical, self-righteous guy. And now I'm preaching the gospel of grace. You know, he's like, I was advancing my reputation. I was doing a pretty good job before. So why else would I be doing this except for Christ has actually changed me? Otherwise, you you couldn't make this up. That's what Paul's saying. So he's saying, you can listen to me because I got this message directly from Christ. And that's what makes him an apostle. That's the uniqueness of an apostle that's different from a disciple. And Paul's saying, you can listen to this message. So now this week, we're getting into some of the specifics of what the Galatians were turning to aside from the gospel of grace. Uh, and that was things like circumcision and some of the Jewish ceremonial laws. Now we can quickly go, you know, Michael, I don't really struggle with whether or not I should do those things. And <laughs> that's fine. That's probably true for most of us. But the principle underneath it, we all struggle with. It's adding anything to the finished work of Christ. Do you think there's anything, whether it's consciously or subconsciously, that I'm adding to for myself or someone else to gain or stay in the love and favor of God. That's most of us, if not all of us. So we need to hear this. We need to hear this passage. And Paul, for the first time, it's a major theme in Galatians, that, uh, that of freedom. He gets to it here. He speaks to it explicitly. Explicitly, we've, we've touched on it in the past couple of weeks. So we've got to wrestle with that here. So kids got something for you to wrestle with here, to talk to your parents about. That is, what is freedom? Okay, here's the, that's the question for you to listen to. What is freedom? Is it that I can do whatever I want? Or is freedom, does it change the things that I want? And here's the other question, how does Jesus give us freedom? Okay, kids? Now, here's a visual for you. I'm a visual guy, so kids and parents alike, here's a quick visual is the fish free? Talk to your parents about that later. But you can keep this visual in your mind as we wrestle with this concept of gospel freedom. Now let's turn to God's inerrant and infallible word. Galatians 2, verses 1 through 10. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. And I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles, in order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. 
But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be, re- to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery. To them, we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seem to be influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor the very thing I was eager to do. This is the word of the Lord. We pray with me. Father, I pray that you would empty me of me, that I'll be a vessel. To deliver your word, Lord, we all need to hear it, that we would be both convicted and encouraged, that we would see what true gospel freedom is, and that you would get glory, and that we would be blessed. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, uh, Disney has uh, enshrined for us the modern cultural mindset uh, about freedom. A number of examples I could give, but how about this? How about the, the Frozen movie? Uh, the kids, are, you're still with me now because you've probably seen it. And adults, maybe if you've got young kids, you've seen it. But if you haven't, I'll, I'll give you a quick recap of the story. It's two sisters, Anna and Elsa, and Elsa has magical powers, right, as all Disney princesses do in some way. She can, uh, you know, make snow and ice uh, come out of her hands. And as the the sisters are young, uh, Elsa accidentally hurts Anna, and she has to be healed and goes through that. And her parents decide that, well, to keep you and everybody else safe, we're going to close up the city walls. We're going to protect you for yourself and for each other. And the years of isolation cause a bit of a rift between the sisters Well, a little later in the story, the the parents actually die at sea. And so Elsa is to be crowned queen. And for the coronation, the city gates are opened up for the first time. And everybody's excited. And people all come in. And in a bad moment, Elsa uses her magic out of anger. And she's accused of witchcraft. And she flees the city and runs off into the wilderness. And she sings the song. Don't worry, I'm not going to sing it. (laughs) I always promise I won't, but I, <laughs> amen. But I will read the lyrics because they actually capture the modern mindset and our view of freedom. It's time, from, it's time to see what I can do to test the limits and break through. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. The irony is she becomes more isolated, not free, and living in a self-built ice prison guarded by an ice monster. Doing what she wanted has not given her freedom in the story, but rather she just changed her prisons. 
How about another quick one here? Little Mermaid. We know maybe we know the story. I'm not going to tell the story of this one, but the story basically comes down to she's constrained by this fin that she has, and she needs to lose it so she can do what she was, what she wants to do to become a human, right? And so she gets free of these constraints. Another movie. This is not Disney, but it's iRobot. Movies, by the way, they they really do. They're the modern uh, preachers to the culture. iRobot. You seen that one? Will Smith. Came out 10, 15 years ago. It's this, it's a it's a movie portrayed in like 2035, which is actually not that far away now. But it's a it's a story about these robots who are doing all kinds of public servant work, right? And they're helping humans, except at some point the robots break the one of the robot laws and they start attacking humans to try to wipe out the human race. And Will Smith's character, a detective spooner is investigating what's going on with all this. And eventually he runs across one robot who was programmed differently. Uh, Someone uh, foresaw the problem and programmed this one robot named Sonny to actually help him deal with the problem of the other robots. And they team up and they win. That's the the long story short. But at the end... The Sonny, the robot, says, now that I've fulfilled my programmed purpose, I don't know what to do. And Smith's character says, well, I guess you'll have to find your own way like the rest of us, Sonny. And there again is the modern mindset portrayed. Humans are like robots that need to break free from all programmed constraints. Whether it's Disney princesses or iRobot or the modern human mind, we think freedom is just doing whatever I want without constraint. But it's a logical fallacy. Because you will, we will serve something. You can throw off one thing and put on something else, but you're going to serve something. How about this? I want to be an NFL tight end when I grow up. What? I, I, I've always was told that I could be whatever I want to be when I grow up. Well, and you laugh because that makes the point, right? I can't, I'm not free to be just whatever I want to be. Because you could say real quick, Michael, you're, you're in your 40s. You're not exactly built like a tight end. Plus, you haven't devoted the 10 to 12 hours of training and devotion to all that over the years, right? You actually, to pursue something, for a, a man to pursue something like that, you actually have to put constraints and restrictions on your life. You've got to... Restrict other things and devote your time to something like that. There's no such thing as absolute freedom for humans, which takes us to the text to see what is gospel freedom then. Verse 4, Paul says there that the false brothers that slipped in to spy out our freedom in Christ, what is that freedom? What's it like? Is it better than the freedom that Elsa or the Little Mermaid got? It's deeper and richer, that's for sure. And this text is going to show us three things that I think are vital for our understanding and enjoyment of this gospel freedom. And that's the three points there in the worship God. This gospel freedom must be truth-centered, must be internally genuine, and it must be outward-focused. So let's go there. Let's talk about truth here for a moment. Truth-centered. Paul was concerned, to say the least, as he writes this letter. And after 14 years, he says it was 14 years of proclaiming the gospel of grace, freedom in the gospel. After 14 years, he begins to hear that some folks are coming in and they're telling these new Christians that, hey, 
there's actually more for you to do to really be a Christian. Paul was so concerned about that that he went to Jerusalem. And he went to these, uh, as it says here, those who seemed influential. We're going to come back to that because he says that, he uses the, the, the Greek word behind that four times here. We're going to come back to that, so hold on to that. Uh, but he, he lays before them this gospel of grace that he's been preaching about Christ. And he says, you know, when I, when I got the gospel from Jesus, he got it directly from Christ. Remember, he's an apostle. That's different. We're, there's no apostles here anymore. He got it directly from Christ. And he goes to Peter and James and John, those guys, and he's like, look, guys, when he gave me that gospel, it didn't say uh, faith in the finished work of Christ plus circumcision. It didn't have anything additional. There was like, there wasn't a do this also in addition to the finished work of Christ. And we've got to get on the same page, brothers. Otherwise, there's people whose faith and hope is in vain. It's meaningless because they, they're not actually not free in the gospel if there's something else to do. He says, we got to get this truth right, brothers. Now, the minute we start talking about truth, absolute truth, you know the world we swim in. The modern mind bristles at absolute truth. That's, that's oppressive, right? It's like power plays. How can you claim that Jesus is the only way? You know this world. You swim in it. You work in it. You go to school in it. The, we, we've inherited a lot of the, the modern mindset has inherited a lot of thinking from things like the Enlightenment that was like, hey, humans can figure out truth. We can reason our way to it. And, and the philosophers just took that and ran with it, like uh, you know, at the risk of getting a little philosophical, a little heady. Stay with me. I'm making a point about truth here. It's important. That, like Friedrich Nietzsche, atheist philosopher, he says, truth is impossible. There can only be perspective and interpretation driven by a person's interest or will to power. Now, what is he saying? He's saying this. He's saying truth is a power play to gain power over others. It's just their opinion, and it's an exercise of power. Bertrand Russell, another atheist philosopher, says, when a man tells you that he knows the exact truth about anything, you're safe in inferring that he is an inexact man. It's sort of like walking through life, just squinting, looking at everybody with suspicion. Why, is, why do you think that's true? Now, I'll say this. These guys, again, atheists, by the way, they're not entirely wrong, are they? Truth claims are used as power plays in this world all the time. And it's actually what Paul's talking about in this text in verse 4, the false brothers who, were, who secretly crept in to spy out their freedom in Christ. They wanted new Christians to follow their truth claims. Say, you got to do this. you got to follow these Jewish regulations. That's what we're doing, and it's what you need to do too. Why did they do that? To bring them into slavery. It's a power play. So it does happen, and Paul's acknowledging it here. It's anything Jesus plus is what he's talking about. So can we have absolute truth? Well, yes, and we actually need it. But there's a problem too. How do we get there? Whose truth is it? Whose version is it? If the evolutionary scientists are right, Stephen Jay Gould, for example, Harvard scientist, atheist, when once asked about the meaning of life, he said, 
We're here because one odd group of fishes had a peculiar fin anatomy that could transform into legs for terrestrial creatures. We may yearn for a higher answer, but none exists. This explanation, though superficially troubling, is ultimately liberating. So interesting, he's talking about freedom here. We must construct these answers for ourselves. Okay, if he's right, then who's to say that Nazi Germany was wrong? Do you follow the point? They were working out their own truth claims, and it was more subtle than you realize. They didn't just all of a sudden came up with, come up with the idea that, you know, we're just going to wipe out a, a whole ethnic group. That sounds like a good idea. They worked their way into it. There's a, a stage production called Good by a guy named C.P. Taylor. It's about a good man named John Halder. He's a professor of literature in Germany during that time frame. And he seems like a good man. He's diligently visiting his blind and senile mother and looks after his vacant wife and three children. He's mostly unremarkable other than an unusual neurotic tick, the imaginary sound of a band playing music in the background of his life, particularly at, mo particularly at moments of high emotion. But he writes a book the results of his own experience, discussing the euthanasia for senile elderly people. This uh, John has unintentionally made himself a very desirable acquisition for the Nazi party. And by rationalized and intellectual steps, he's absorbed into the direction of the death camps. A transformation all the more chilling because it does not seem dramatic until the last horrible resounding note of the play. The character seemed good, well-intended, but he came up with his own truth claim. But if it's us making up our own, then who's right and who's wrong? There's some pretty bad ones out there, but how do we call it, why do we call it bad? How do we measure the truth? Meanwhile, the Nietzsche's are going around like, hmm, yeah, power plays. All truth claims, if all truth claims are power plays, that is a truth claim. The claim that says all truth claims or all truth is relative, that's a truth claim. And so you've got to pull the, your own rug out from under yourself. You see, somebody's got to determine truth, and we have to have it. Truth claims also require faith. I don't care which version, I don't care how scientific you think it is, it requires faith. I'll make the point with Calvin and Hobbes. One of my favorites, I grew up reading Calvin and Hobbes. And Calvin says, you know, I don't think math is a science. I think it's a religion. Hobbes goes, oh, religion, eh? Yeah, Calvin says, all these equations are like miracles. You take two numbers, and when you add them, they magically become one new number. No one can say how it happens. You either believe it or you don't. <laughs> this whole book is full of things that have to be accepted on faith. It's a religion. And Hobbes goes, ah, in public schools, no less. Call a lawyer. As Calvin says, as a math atheist, I should be excused from this. What's he saying? It requires faith. We have to take everything on faith. That's the point. It requires faith. And so, is there a truth claim that is actually freeing, that is not just a power play? Anything that is Jesus plus or any other world religion is advice. 
here's how you can become a better person. Here's how you can get freedom. Here's how you can break free. But ironically, it's just a prison of self-effort. That brings us to the next point. For a truth to give us freedom, it's got to actually change us. We can't just dress up in the truth's claim. So gospel freedom must be internally genuine. What do I mean? Well, there's many, many well-meaning, well-intended religious folks who are dressing up in the truth. We can put Christianity on the outside of us. And these false brothers were dressing up with their own religious practices of circumcision and Jewish regulations and expecting everyone else to do the same thing. Why? Because it was their way to gain power and control, control over their reputation with others, and perhaps even trying to control God's love for them. How do we know these folks were focused on externals? Well, let's come back to that word, the those who seemed influential. The, the Greek word behind that is kind of hard to translate, I think. It, it could literally mean the ones that seem to have appearances. Now, he's talking about uh, uh, James and Peter and John and all these guys. He's saying, hey, these seemingly influential people, I think he's actually quoting these false brothers. He's saying, okay, you talk about these seemingly influential guys, well, guess what? They were my brothers. They were my fellow apostles, and I went and met with them, and we talked about the truth, and guess what? They didn't add anything to my message. They didn't add anything to me. Here's the real kicker, verse 6. It puts the nail in the coffin of external religion. He says it's this little parenthetical statement. What they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Now, again, If you dive into the Greek, it's really interesting. Literally, it could be God does not accept the face of man or the facade of man. Acceptance with God does not work on external behavior. You can't dress up like a Christian and control God's love for you. You can't behave your way into God's love. You can't pray your way into God's love. You can't walk the aisle into God's love. That's a prison. You know why? Because you'll never know if you did enough. You'll never know. You'll never know that you really meant it enough because it's based on you and me. External religion is a prison. I have come to believe that uh, every human being has daddy issues. (laughs) Now, here's what I mean by that. You can have the best dad in the world, and you'll still have daddy issues because I'm not talking about earthly dads. I'm talking about the heavenly Father, that we are all separated from in this life, apart from Christ. Now, in Story Church, we've been talking about Jacob's life. Jacob was a messy dude in the Old Testament. He was actually the father of Israel, which is ironic. But he's a messy dude, and guess what? He had big-time daddy issues because his dad loved his older brother better than him. And so what does he do? He dressed up like his older brother when his dad was old and couldn't see, tried to fool his dad to get his father's approval and blessing. Guess what? It worked. But he had to dress up as his older brother. How often are we trying to dress up, to put on externals? 
are we dressing up in some way? Here's, here's what happens. Here's what can manifest in our lives when we're trying to dress up for God or for each other. One, we can become neurotic. <laughs> I'm full of anxiety and I can't rest because I'm constantly worried about what everybody thinks about me. My reputation becomes my barometer for God's love for me. Secondly, we can just become insecure. I'm not willing to receive correction or be spoken into because my hope is in how well I'm doing. And so that shatters my identity. Thirdly, we can become defensive. I find that I'm easily taking things personally, and therefore my gut response is to defend myself because my hope is in how well I'm doing. Fourthly, we can constantly be comparing ourselves to one another. I've actually heard of churches that post Sunday school attendance records to the whole church. You don't want to do that? No, that's well-intended, okay? It's trying to encourage folks in in certain directions, but guess what? Human nature is going to turn it into a comparison game because we want to measure ourselves and we want to measure up, and it will create a culture of shame and guilt or competition We're tempted to measure God's love based on our performance. The only way we will ever experience real gospel freedom is if it becomes an internal reality. Is my life really centered on the finished work of Christ on my behalf? Have I really come to terms with the fact that I'm a sinner at my core, not just my behavior, but my nature? And therefore, my only hope is Christ. And because of that, I'm loved and accepted by God because I get credit for Jesus' righteousness plus nothing else. If that sunk into our bones, then we would taste gospel freedom. And then we'd be freed from the prison of a shelled performance-based existence. Which is our third point. If we're freed from ourselves, we begin to be outward-focused. And that's the, the way this passage plays out. Paul and Peter and John and James, they all give each other the right hand of fellowship, and they go, Paul and Barnabas, you go to the uncircumcised, we're going to go to the circumcised. Either way, it remains a gospel that is for all, not just for the circumcised. And so we become externally focused. When I'm freed from the external religious practices, I'm freed from the prison of self, and I begin we begin to actually see others. We see them. The pillars didn't add anything to Paul's message. And so if I'm not focused on me, if I'm not worried about what you all think of me, then I can actually see you and not just worry, what are they thinking about me? Or I need their approval, or they're not really doing what I think they should be doing. I'm free to see them for the deeper needs and the deeper issues that we all struggle with, that we are all, every human being you see is in some way a child in need of a daddy's love, a heavenly father's love. I can see others struggling with the same things that I do. I can see them trying to dress up or cover over their mess, desperate for love, hiding their failures, performing for some audience, wondering if they've been good enough or thrown off all restrictions because they feel too far gone to be loved. Everyone's got daddy issues because everyone is separated from the true father of all of life. You know what you can tell them? 
Same thing that you can remind yourself of. No, you can't be good enough. Yes, I'm just as bad as you are. And there is a father who wants your freedom. You know how you get it? By seeing the only truly free person to ever walk this earth, the only true son of the father, and we see him giving up his own freedom so that we could have it. Philippians 2 says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see Jesus giving up his freedom so that you could have it? When we see that, that lands in our hearts. He went through all that for you and I. Back to the movies. I got movies on the brain right now. I'll close with this one. Just the other day, I was watching this new movie called Bad Guys. Maybe you haven't seen it. It's fairly new, but if you've got kids, you might have seen it. It's an animated movie, and it's got all different kinds of animals in it. And there's a group of bad ones. They're bad guys that are running all these heists and thefts. And it's a, you know, it's a shark and it's a wolf and it's a snake and a tarantula. It's all the scary animals and they're the bad guys. And they're at some point, they're pulling off this heist and they get caught. But at this heist, they're trying to steal this award that this professor, this uh, philanthropist, who's actually a guinea pig, <laughs> um, and this is, this is, his name is Professor Marmalade. And I was watching this the other day and it struck me because he's given a speech at this conference. <laughs> and this is what he says. And again, it enshrines another version of the modern mind. He says, I did these good things because of how they made me feel. The tingly feeling I get, the shiver up my spine, the wag in my tiny tail. Because you see, being good just feels so good. And when you're good... You're loved. Well, that struck me. Freedom is not Elsa's kind of freedom, but it's also not this kind of freedom. It's also not I'll be good and then I'm loved, and it's also not I'm free and I'm going to do whatever I want to do. Those are two different modern mindsets, moralism and absolute freedom, and neither are freedom. When I, whenever I counsel a couple preparing for marriage, I say to them, you're about to take vows to each other. You're actually going to restrict yourselves from all others to just one person. And you're going to find in that that it's the most freeing thing in the world. <laughs> because inside that covenant bond, you are safe to be totally free who you are, knowing that that other person has vowed to never go anywhere. They're never going to leave, but that's not freedom to just do whatever you want because <laughs> that's not a relationship. When two people come together restricting themselves of all others to love the other, you are free to rest in that love and grow in that love. That, friends, 
the picture of God's love for you. He's bound himself to you. And that's the way we can taste gospel freedom. Freedom is not a set of rules, and it's not doing whatever you want to do. It's a person. Are you in him? If you're not sure about that, I want you to come bug me about it. Come ask me questions. I'll spend time. We, well, let's work that out together. Don't leave unsure. Don't leave without the freedom that we have in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the fact that it gives freedom. We thank you that it's a relationship with your own son and we're united to him. Father, I pray for anyone here this morning who is struggling with that, is not sure about that. Lord, would you open their eyes? Would you open their hearts to receive the truth, the reality of the gospel of grace that would drop down into their hearts and change them? and change all of us, Lord. We pray this for your glory and for our good. In Christ's name, amen.